0: Hey, everyone. You ready to hear about taxes? Yes. Wait, wait, wait. Don't go away. I promise I'll try to make this as interesting as possible. You got it. Thanks. Sure. So a few times already in this podcast, I've mentioned tax abatement and property taxes. Because those are probably the two things I've heard longtime homeowners in the neighborhood bring up most often as feeling unfair. But no one's story brought all this into focus for me more vividly than helen massey's
1: would you would you want a cup of coffee oh sure
0: i'd love one if you've got some uh... i got some made helen massey is this really kind woman who's lived in a house around the corner from mine for more than 50 years she and her husband moved here from west virginia in the late 1960s and they lived a quiet productive life together they raised three boys And both worked for the General Electric plant in East Cleveland, a place famous, if you're from around here, for its annual holiday light display.
1: He had 35 years and I had 30 years.
0: Helen and her husband bought their house for about $16,000. If you happen to have an incredibly sharp memory, you may recall former councilman Matt Zone saying that that amount, $16,000, was the average sales price for a house in the neighborhood all the way up until he took office in 2002. But now, things are a little different.
1: My grandson got on um, the computer, I think, a 474 or something like that. Yeah. A lot of money they paid for that house.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a
1: and lot. And they've been coming here wanting to buy this house, too.
0: Really? People uh, have been coming and asking? Uh-huh. Well, not, I get knocking... all kinds of
1: stuff in the mail. Mm-hmm.
0: How do you feel about that?
1: I want to be just like my husband. I want to live here till I die.
0: For more than 30 years... Helen's taxes rose very slowly. That's not entirely a good thing because it also means that the value of her house was stagnant or really declining when you account for inflation. That's the plate of so many houses in so many Cleveland neighborhoods still today. But the good part of that slow climb in taxes was that for Helen, the cost of living here was predictable and very affordable year in and year out. That changed in a big way in 2018 when her property taxes more than doubled. How did that affect you? Is that I'm assuming that's hard for you to afford. It
1: is. It is. Uh-huh. It, it's hard. The kids helps me out when they can, you know. But I haven't asked for no help yet, but I'm pretty sure I will have to.
0: There is an official way to appeal a hike in property taxes. You can file some paperwork with the Cuyahoga County Board of Revisions. That's the government agency that decides every couple of years how much houses are worth. We're going to get more into how all that works in a couple minutes. But for now, just know that it involves putting together lots of documentation and then making an appearance before a board of commissioners. One of Helen's sons actually did that on her behalf. And how did that go?
1: They said, uh, nothing you can do. And he said, well, my mom will probably have to sell her house. They said, well, that's what she'll have to do. They're not lowering the taxes.
0: Helen says she does not feel in immediate danger of having to sell her house because of taxes going up. She's got income from Social Security and both her and her husband's pensions. Still, it's not a ton, especially when you factor in the cost of maintaining an old house. And with her taxes going up again in 2020, she's concerned she may not be able to spend the rest of her life here as she'd always planned. Compared with a lot of Cleveland suburbs, Helen's taxes are still pretty low. But Helen says for her, the increase in taxes is less about the amount itself and more about predictability and fairness. Helen points across the street at the high-end townhouses that her house faces, the ones she looks at every time she steps out the front door.
1: And I think these people over here has a 15-year tax abatement. And I think what they're doing is raising everybody else is to make up for that or something. I don't know. I feel it's wrong.
0: Helen is talking about a program we've mentioned a few times before on this podcast, the city of Cleveland's tax abatement program. Since the 1990s, That program has given developers and homeowners a 15-year pass on paying taxes on new construction and a 10-year pass on major renovations. You've heard some of the people I've interviewed, former councilman Matt Zone, nonprofit developer Charlie Mano, credit it with being a huge factor, maybe the biggest single factor, in bringing back a functioning housing market to my neighborhood and a few others in Cleveland. But almost since its creation, Longtime property owners have also criticized tax abatement for being really unfair. They say in some places, it's part of why property taxes have doubled, tripled, or even quadrupled. And it doesn't, of course, just affect property owners. Landlords pass those increases down to their renters. People like Helen Massey are saying, hey, I'm elderly, I'm on a limited income. I've put my blood, sweat, and tears into my house, raised my family here, and stayed committed to this neighborhood when a lot of other people were bailing. And yet I'm the one whose property taxes are going up, while the rich people across the street from me, the ones who could more easily afford increases, are getting huge tax breaks? On this episode, our very uneven system of property taxes in Cleveland, and what attempts are being made to make it more fair. Have you ever really thought about how the government decides how much your house or apartment building is worth? I hadn't really before working on this episode. And it's actually a fascinating question, tied up in this country in race, class, and our tendency to value new over old. But for the purposes of this podcast, I wanted to know why the property taxes in my neighborhood had shot up so dramatically. Like, what were the nuts and bolts behind deciding houses in the neighborhood were now worth multiples more than what they had been a few years ago?
3: My name is Ron O'Leary, and I'm the administrator with the Cuyahoga County Board of Revision.
0: Ron O'Leary is a career public servant. He worked for the city of Cleveland's housing department for years, then was elected judge of the Cleveland Housing Court in 2017 before being defeated in his reelection bid in 2019. That's when he got his current job, Heading the county's Board of Revision, where Helen Massey's son went to complain about her taxes going up. I wanted to ask Ron about how the county decides how much people's houses are worth in the first place. He explained that the county determines property values on a six-year cycle. In, in year one of the cycle, they do have
3: appraisers physically go out to every property in the county and, and do an exterior look. So when county does an appraiser appraisal, it is not the same thing that a private appraiser would do. It really is an exterior looked property. They um, will typically give it a rating, A, B, C. I don't know if they do D, I believe they do F. Um, but you know, you'll know, you kind of look and you'll see the property condition You know, on, on the tax bill. That's what it comes from.
0: Yeah, did you know your house gets a grade? At least if you live in Cuyahoga County, my own gets a C which my overachiever side does not like at all. That speaks to the idea of old versus new that I mentioned before. Because even though my house has a lot of new stuff on the outside, like new siding, new windows, it's still 100 years old. And that shows in things like the foundation, the fact that it's just a little bit crooked. The houses that get A's in my neighborhood and across the county, they tend to be brand new. Then in year four of that six year cycle,
3: the appraisal department is not sending people out in year four, but what they do is they look at you know, what properties have been selling for in a neighborhood and, and make an adjustment based on that.
0: It's called a statistical update. So that's how the process works in a nutshell. And when you look at the property taxes in my neighborhood, they really started to soar in that year that Helen Massey talked about, 2018. Ron O'Leary didn't have any specific explanation about why that year in particular was the one when my neighborhood arrived in the eyes of the appraisers. But just based on how he explained the process, it must have been when a critical mass of houses started looking better from the outside, meaning looking newer, better cared for, combined with sales prices jumping up at the same time. For a lot of longtime residents in my neighborhood, that year 2018 will forever live in infamy. In their view, that was the year when the place officially became unaffordable, and when the differences in how people are treated by our tax policies became officially indefensible. uh,
4: My property tax went up 60%. A lot of people in this neighborhood had 300, or some people in the neighborhood had as much as 300%. Uh, It's because we live in a very affluent neighborhood now.
0: Jim Catrone has lived on my street for decades. He's a mostly retired artist and metal worker, and for years, he was the head of the local block club. So, super involved in the neighborhood. His house from the outside is a real standout. Beautiful flower beds in the front garden, arched windows on the facade. But Jim tells me during an interview one day on my front porch, the inside of his house is a different story. This place needs a lot of work, he says. So he felt like the new value the county assigned wasn't fair. He studied up on the appeals process with the Board of Revision, and he found out the first step was to fill out an online form.
4: I called three times to understand how to fill out this very simple form. If you've seen it, you know it. It's not much, but it, it, the terminology is, is confusing regarding what's market value what's full value.
0: The forum asks you to state what you think your house would be worth if you were to sell it. Then you're supposed to submit supporting evidence to back up your claim.
4: So I had all those photographs of my house that I very carefully put together. Uh, The inside is not uh, fully renovated. You know, all these houses around here that are going for $450,000 are you know renovated inside and out. I put a lot of money into my house, but, you know, it's, it's nowhere
0: near that. After submitting all your paperwork, the next step is that the Board of Revision calls you in for a hearing.
5: Good morning. Today is Monday, September 28th, 2020. This is Board E of the Cuyahoga County Board of Revision. My name is Mike Fainas.
0: Jim Catron's hearing was in September 2020, and given that it was the first year of COVID, it happened over Zoom. The hearing was before a three-person panel, including hearing officer Mike Fainas, Who's the guy you're gonna be hearing in these next few clips talking to Jim?
5: Fiscal officer have the market value at hundred six thousand one hundred. You're requesting a new value of sixty nine thousand six hundred fifty dollars. Is that right, Mr. Catron? Yes,
6: that's correct.
5: Now we're ready to hear how you came up with this value.
0: Well I Jim explains that he took the value of his house from his homeowner's insurance. That insurance says the house is worth somewhere around $199,000, then took 35% of that to get $69,500. He did that calculation because, in Ohio, counties tax you on 35% of the market value of your house. That's what the county thinks you could sell it for, and then the 35% of that value is called the assessed value.
5: Have you had a reason to have an appraisal on the property in the last couple of years?
6: No, I uh, I'm not interested in selling, and uh, 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 my I've had the same uh, insurance company for over 35 years now, and certainly since I've owned this property, and they have increased uh, the insurance value according to what they see as the street value
0: of this home. Jim and the panel go back and forth for a while. They go over the photographs he submitted showing the house hasn't had any major interior renovations. Then they circle back around to the overall value that Jim is claiming.
5: I was going to comment on that, uh, what you called a street value. What did you mean by a street value?
6: street value is, is, what, uh, is what I think I could sell my home for at the okay. insurance
5: company. There is, there is two things that we, we do here. What you call the street value, we call it market value. If you put your house on the market, how much do you expect to sell it for? The, yeah. The other right. va- and that you said is 199000 approximately, anyway. That's my, okay. my insurance company. And, and, I, and, of it. and then the other value that you're trying to figure out is the assessed value, which is 35% of that one ninety nine. Correct. In this hearing, what you, what we're interested in, not the assess value, it's the market value or what you called a
6: street value. Well, see, this has been an issue from the beginning uh, of this process.
0: That long pause you just heard from Jim—that's him realizing that the board is telling him that, in a roundabout way. He's actually arguing for a market value almost $100,000 higher than what the county had proposed because he thought the county's value was the assessed value, that 35% figure. If Jim keeps pushing that point, his taxes are going to go up way higher than they already are. Jim talks to the board about how confusing all the various terms are. And Mike Fiennes comes back with this.
5: So. In your opinion, if you put the house on the market on one nineteen, how much do you think you would get as an offer? That's where where we're going with this.
6: Yeah, and what and what happens to that figure? That's what, what I want to. that's not our charge.
5: Our charge is to find out how much your house is worth as of one nineteen.
0: To which Jim says. Yeah, I guess up to $199,000, like my insurance company said.
6: Okay. Uh, So here's the issue for me. If we're talking about giving you uh, a a value that's going to raise my taxes, that's not my intention. Uh, I didn't
5: start out doing this to uh, to have an increase. Okay, Mr. Tetron, I guess you answered all our questions. This will conclude. Conclude our hearing. The board will make a decision.
0: And that's it. Hearing over. Mike Fainis says Jim will hear back from the board in two weeks about their decision. And big surprise, the way the story turns out is that they denied his claim for a lower property value. But they also didn't raise his value, which listening to that tape, you might have thought they would. Back on my front porch, I asked Jim how we reflected back on that hearing.
4: I think that they assumed that it was obvious what these terms meant and, and how they came about the evaluation.
0: But he says it's not obvious. And if it's not obvious to him, a former block club leader who's pretty tuned in to the inner workings of housing and neighborhoods, it's probably even less obvious to others. He says he's kind of let the whole thing go now, wiser from his experience, And also with the perspective that he's not doing so bad, especially compared to some of our neighbors who've seen a lot bigger tax increases and possibly fewer resources to cover them.
4: I'm not wealthy, but I don't, I'm not afraid of losing my house. I can go and buy food that I want. I lease a car. You know what I mean? I think the real issue about these evaluations is property tax abatements.
0: There it is again, that idea that property tax increases are bad enough, but maybe they could be tolerable if it weren't for the fact that the wealthiest and newest neighbors have super low taxes that are frozen for 10 or 15 years. Let's put tax abatement in the parking lot for the moment, though, because I first wanted to ask Ron O'Leary from the Board of Revision, are people often confused, like Jim was, about how to navigate the process? And he said, pretty much, yes.
3: And our, our staff does try to help people as much as possible, but we have to draw the line that we can't give legal advice. So we, we can tell you how to submit something. You know, we can tell you what deadlines are. We can tell you procedurally what's going to happen, but we can't advise you on how to present your case.
0: In 2018, the last full update year, and the year that lives in infamy in many of my neighbors' minds, about 14,000 complaints were filed across Cuyahoga County. I asked Ron how many of those were successful, and he said the Board of Revision's computer software does not track that, but they're hoping to upgrade it in the future. So roughly speaking, would you say more complaints are successful or unsuccessful? I don't know. But O'Leary says what he does know is that certain types of evidence are more effective than others in helping people win their cases. A private full appraisal is one. Another is that you actually bought your house recently for a lot less than the county says it's worth. One thing that doesn't usually work appeals to the hearing officer's sympathy. Appeals that amount to, hey, I've lived here a long time. This is my home. I don't want to move. And I just can't afford these taxes.
3: And our hearing officers, I think in evaluating that are going to say, you know, we're sympathetic to you, but you could sell your house and make a lot of money and what we have to determine is what the property value is not whether you are employed underemployed unemployed you know whether you can afford to to pay your taxes or your grocery bill or your utilities
0: do you think Ron that property taxes going up i mean how commonly is that a factor in someone needing to move because they can't afford their neighborhood anymore
3: i think that there's a lot of that professionally You know, like I said, you know, I'm sympathetic to it. And I think everybody at the Board of Revision is, and, and probably everybody at the appraisal department is as well. But we have to follow what the legal standard is. But I think that this is something that probably has to be dealt with at the state level.
0: Dealt with at the state level. That's because in Ohio, property tax policy is set by the state. Individual cities can change tax rates, and public institutions like libraries and park districts can ask for tax levies. But let's say you're interested in exempting people from paying some or all of their property taxes because, say, they've lived in a neighborhood for a really long time and you feel they deserve to stay. That is something the state needs to allow, according to Emily Lundgaard. Emily Lungard is the state and local policy director for the Cleveland Office of Enterprise Community Partners. That's a national nonprofit that works on increasing housing affordability. And she is the real version of that rhetorical person I just sketched out a second ago. Someone who's trying to change state policy to help people who are seeing big property tax increases. Think
2: homeowners that bought homes maybe 20, 30 years ago, when these neighborhoods really needed a lot of investment and care. And now they're seeing the world around them grow at such a rapid pace. It's now impacting their ability to continue to stay.
0: What she's working on with another local nonprofit called Cleveland Neighborhood Progress and other partners across the state.
2: Can we develop a relief program or set of relief programs that broadens property tax relief for all of these homeowners, particularly the long-term, low-income homeowners that are starting to feel that pressure in their community.
0: We actually do already have one property tax break in Ohio for long-time homeowners. It's called the Homestead Exemption, but it's limited to a few specific groups, people who are either 65 and over or disabled or both, and with an adjusted gross income under $35,000 a year. It also only applies to the first $25,000 of a house's market value, or $50,000 if you happen to be a veteran. The policy that Emily and her partners are working on would expand that exemption to all longtime property owners, even if they're not yet 65, and raise the income ceiling, though not erase it. The new policy would also allow counties to raise taxes more slowly in hot neighborhoods like mine. And Emily, how close do you think we are to having something happen? Like if you were to try to ballpark when this might happen or if it might happen, what would you say?
2: Hard to say, but I will say this. One of the most exciting moments for policymaking in the state of Ohio is our biennial budget process. And that becomes the opportunity for not just things to be funded, but for new programs to be put in place and for new policies to be enacted. Our state biennial budget process happens next uh, in about a year. It'll be it'll be passed by July of 2023. So in relative short order, negotiations are going to begin. And that, in my mind, is the next point on the horizon to have a real opportunity to get some property tax relief done.
0: Of course, lower and slower property taxes are just one way to help people feel less pressure to leave a neighborhood. Emily is also working on some other strategies, and we'll hear about them in the next episode. But I promised, and or threatened, that this episode was going to be all about taxes, right? So let's stick with that a little bit longer. I have heard a lot of anger about tax abatement over the years, especially in my neighborhood, where, as we've heard a few times now, people tend to contrast it with how longtime owners and renters are suffering from property tax increases. Or there's this conversation I had one day with my neighbor, Fatima Johnson. She was talking about walking through Battery Park, the neighborhood of high-end townhouses, condos, and apartments, built on the former battery factory a couple blocks from me. As
1: soon as they taxed, because down at the condominiums down by Battery Park, Mm -hmm. half of those people that was there are gone because they tax abatement time has ran out. You always see a for sale sign or something down there, because I walk Faith that way every single morning.
0: Faith is her toy poodle, forever present by Fatima's side.
1: And and I'm like, okay, where did this person go? Where did that person go? As soon as their tax abatement is up, they leave. You don't live all this time tax free. Everybody else taxes went up. It's not fair. It's just not right.
0: I've heard some of my other neighbors make that same accusation, that rich people tax abatement surf, moving from one abated property to the next before their 15 year abatement is up. You also know, if you've been listening to this podcast, that the city's tax abatement policy was just modified for certain neighborhoods, including mine. Balencik, yes. Santana, Slife, yes. Spencer, yes. Star, uh, 14 years, no nays. Thank you so much. Uh, ordinance number 482. That's council unanimously passing the revisions in May 2022. According to the revised policy, in so-called strong market neighborhoods like mine, Single-family and two-family houses will get an 85% tax abatement on the first $350,000 of the property's value. As for developers of multifamily buildings, in my neighborhood, they'll also be able to claim an abatement on 85%, but this time of the project's total value. But there's a condition with that for developers. They have to sign a community benefits agreement where they agree to set aside a quarter of the total units they're building to be affordable for houses making $56,000 a year. That's the median household income in Northeast Ohio.
2: Because of an overly generous policy that went on at least five years longer than it should have, we have an oversaturation of rental units at the high end of the market, meaning that in Ward 15, we are not building the equitable community to which we aspire and which Clevelanders need.
0: That's Jenny Spencer, the councilperson for my neighborhood, which is part of Ward 15, speaking in support of the revisions. You may remember that a few episodes ago, she spoke to me about the need to cool off tax abatement in our neighborhood and how community benefits agreements could be attached to tax abatement to make sure we keep building affordable units alongside the market rate ones. So, two wins for her here, right? But if you're not exactly hearing a tone of celebration in her voice, Here's why.
2: I voted in favor of today's legislation because progress has been made. It is not enough.
0: Jenny Spencer goes on to talk about caps on property taxes, like what Emily Lungard and others are working on, and the need for other programs to create new housing for older people and lower-income people. We'll talk more about some of those ideas in the next episode. But I wanted to end this episode by talking to a person who benefits from tax abatement and how they feel about it.
7: Hi, everybody, I'm Mark Matern. I am a professor of political science at Baldwin Wallace University.
0: Mark Matern lives in Battery Park with his wife. They moved in about 10 years ago after raising their son in the inner ring suburb of Lakewood, which I mentioned a few minutes ago is having really high property taxes. They're originally from California, but they came to Northeast Ohio when Mark got his job at Baldwin Wallace University, that's a small college in another Cleveland suburb called Berea.
7: Yeah, I, I love it here. I really love this neighborhood.
0: He and his wife moved into their condo when it was first built, and they got a full 15-year tax abatement, something that he says he's reflected on a lot in the intervening years. So
7: I have contributed precious little in the way of taxes to the to the Cleveland tax base, um, and you know, and we could talk about how that dynamic is racialized in Battery Park, too. Most of us are are fairly affluent white people.
0: He says at times he has felt, and sometimes even heard stated out loud, resentment from longer-term residents toward him and his neighbors in Battery Park. And how do you feel about that?
7: My wife says I'm very well defended. Uh, despite being a former Catholic, I, I have a very low capacity for guilt. So I've never felt guilty. I've been very aware of it. Uh, and we've tried to contribute in other ways. And uh, so.
0: And you said you have lived there for about 10 years. So the abatement will run out pretty soon. Do you think you'll stay when that happens?
7: Yeah, we are aware that it's, we have what, four or five years left on it. But that will not factor into whether or not we continue living in the neighborhood. If we move, it'll probably be because. Um, Our knees give out. We're both older than the typical Battery Park resident and and we may have to bail sooner or later just to get into a single story unit. You know, as I say, I teach political science. I teach political economy in particular and I used my situation as a case study in corporate welfare. The Maruse Brothers and Vintage were able to price these at premium levels.
0: The Maroose Brothers and Vintage Development Group are the names of the developers of Battery Park. Uh,
7: and and sell them because, frankly, they were getting a handout from the, the city of Cleveland, and it wasn't just the tax abatement that allowed us to afford, otherwise we wouldn't have been able to afford the unit, honestly, but, but uh, we also got a subsidized uh, low interest loan that i don't know if those are still available for buyers anymore but they, they were they were shaving a whole percentage point off mortgage loans which again brought the the monthly payment down to where we could afford it uh, so essentially it was a form of corporate welfare is how i look at it for for them and and we benefited from it again i want to be clear about that i'm well aware that we were benefiting
0: mark how do you feel about tax abatement as a policy
7: I think there should be a limit. And in this neighborhood anyway, uh, it has certainly contributed to, it has succeeded at least in terms of encouraging an influx of fairly well-to-do people, you know, which has contributed to the increase in entertainment and dining options and, and all that. So all that is to the good, again, with the caveat that I hope it doesn't drive out all low-income folks. I, I hope we may manage to maintain the diversity in the neighborhood. So in theory, I suppose, uh, the high, the higher income stuff can coexist with uh, some of the legacy and uh, lower income portions of the neighborhood.
0: Then Mark Matern gets all professorial on me and asks what I think of tax abatement. I mean, I've heard compelling arguments on both sides. One thing that I reflect on sometimes is it feels like an awkward workaround to the fact that for years we've given more affluent people incentives for moving outward away from the city, like, you know, access to mortgage loans and so on, subsidized highways. And now we've created a whole other system of incentives over top of that to lure them you know, back to the neighborhoods that maybe their parents had left.
7: I think your idea of a workaround is a good one. It, it, it's helpful to think of it in those ways we're, we're stuck in this system, you know, whether we like it or not. And given the motivations and the, the incentives that are part of that system, you, you, you either work within the system, uh, or while trying to change it, if you, if you don't like the system, I suppose. Uh, the only other alternative is you know, go live in northern Minnesota or something,
0: (laughs) you know. Unfortunately for Mark, I checked this out after we talked, people are concerned about gentrification in Duluth too. But his comment about working within the system while trying to change it, we're going to talk a lot more about that in the next and final episode. Can Cleveland be the place that figures out how to maintain a true mix of people, despite all the factors that are in place in our country that seem to push neighborhoods toward becoming either poorer and poorer, or richer and richer, and more segregated by race rather than less? Because we're not exploding in population like, say, San Francisco and New York, do we have more time and space to figure all this out? Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood is an IdeaStream public media podcast. It's written and reported by me, Justin Glanville, and edited by Mike McIntyre, IdeaStream's executive editor. Sound design and production are by John Nungesser. Thanks also to producer Drew Mazzius. Our director of strategic content initiatives is Natalie Pillsbury. Mark Rosenberger is our chief of content. Our music is by local musician Aaron Snorton with additional music from Ketza and Ben von Wildenhaus from the Free Music Archive. Visit us online at ideastream.org inside the bricks. There's a lot of ways to connect on the site. Like you can sign up for a newsletter with extra stories and thoughts that didn't make the podcast. Or you can take our audience survey to tell us what you think and let us know about things we're missing or that you want to talk about. Until next time.